50 years ago and just over a week ago, the world changed. It changed pretty profoundly, actually. You know, this going back to the summer of 1969, just a little bit before my time, an event happened that truly, I believe, changed the world. And that, of course, I'm referring to July 20th, 1969, uh, the moon landing. The moon landing was an event that was really shared by the world. Estimates, I don't know how exactly they calculate this, but estimates say that over 500 million people tuned in to watch the lunar landing. Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, these three brave guys, these astronauts, they left this Earth and they went to the moon. We put a man on the moon 50 years ago. Now, they were obviously uh, on a mission for NASA. And this mission had so many different types of components to it. But primary among them was the space race. It was us, the United States versus the Soviet Union. And this space race really captivated uh, the 1960s. You can hear President Kennedy in his declaration you know, saying that we will put a man on the moon. This mission was accomplished in glorious fashion in front of 500 million people. In fact, they left a plaque uh, on the moon before they left, and in part that plaque reads, we came in peace for all mankind. Isn't that profound? Isn't that great? We came in peace for all mankind. What a mission that these men were on. It wasn't just them. There were countless number of other people that worked behind the scenes for more than a decade to get ready for that moment. That mission was an incredible moment in human history. And as such, there was an incredible amount of mystery and intrigue and fascination. It captivated the imagination of the world. News broadcasts all over the globe just tuned in and they analyzed it. And so many of the questions surrounding the moon landing centered around what would happen this great unknown, this mystery of what would happen. Some of the questions are pretty deep. What would happen if the, the, the spacecraft didn't make it? What would happen if the astronauts' suits failed? What would happen if they got onto the moon and something weird happened with gravity there? What would, what would happen when the, the vehicle, the eagle, finally lands? If they actually made it there safe and sound, what would happen when the astronauts got out of the ship? What was the moon made out of? Would they sink into the moon? The questions went on and on and on. There was such a great mystery and fascination surrounding this lunar landing, this event that truly did change everything. <laughs> and that's the thing. It wasn't just a mission. It was a mission surrounded by a lot of mystery and intrigue and fascination. And I believe it changed the world, quite literally. So many of the modern-day conveniences that we enjoy today were forged in the 1960s leading up to that Apollo 11 mission. Uh, the list is, goes into the hundreds. Let me just share with you just a few of them. Uh, you think about some of the boots, the, the lunar boots, the moonwalking boots. Well, they used that technology to fashion how sneakers and shoes were made and boots were made in generations from then. The same with the helmets and the goggles and the, some of the gear that the astronauts wore. Those had applications for everyday life afterwards. You can just think of computer chips. 
NASA made an industry out of these computer chips, and that would later turn into IBM and Apple and home computing and laptops and cell phones and so much of the technology that we use today every day. So much of that was forged in this space race and ultimately this Apollo 11 moon landing. Firefighters, the, the suits that they wear, cooling systems in those, healthcare, CAT scan machines, MRIs, pacemakers, all of these engineering traced themselves backwards in time to this moment. Already mentioned politics, this created such a victory for the United States in, in the Cold War. It was us against them, right? It was, it was freedom versus communism, and we struck a major victory because of the moon landing. Not just in a PR way, but technologically, we were at an advantage because of that. Tools and cordless technology and food, and on and on and on it goes. It changed the world in many senses. What an event that was. A grand mission wrapped up in an incredible amount of mystery and intrigue and fascination, captivating the, the imagination of the world and ultimately changing the world. Well, today we're talking about mission. Today, I want us to examine how we as individuals, as families, and as churches were created for this mission that God has given to us. It's a mission much even grander than the moon landing. But it's got mystery to it. It's wrapped up in intrigue and mystery and fascination this mission that has been given to us by God himself, I hope that you understand that the life of a Christ follower is not to be systematized to the point where we can compartmentalize it and understand it and have it all figured out by the time we're 50 years old and call it a day. No, this life of faith that we are called to, that we are created for, just keeps teaching us new things and God keeps revealing to us deeper parts of the mystery of God. It's a mission, it's a mystery, and it's here to change the world. We've been going through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to continue in that today. So I'm going to invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And before, before we get there, I, I want to unpack what I believe, in my words, what this mission is. Here's the mission. You ready for it? You can write this down if you need to. The mission that I believe God has called us to is this, that the church will make known the manifold wisdom of God. Ooh, that's a lot. Let's say that again. That the church would make known the manifold wisdom of God. What is that? That's the gospel. So profoundly that heaven itself rejoices and hell recoils in fear. That's our mission. We'll say that again. <laughs> that the church would make known the manifold wisdom of God, which is the gospel, right? so profoundly that heaven itself rejoices and hell recoils in fear. Now, where would I get such a claim? Why would I say that so specifically that that is our mission? Well, the scriptural basis for that is in Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to go to verse 10 right now and read this to you. His intent being God, God's intent was that now, through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's the Apostle Paul again. He's writing this letter as we've discussed to the church in Ephesus. And as he's writing this letter, he feels called by God to share this mission with the church as they're discovering who they are created to be in Christ. And he says that we are created for this grand mission of making sure the gospel of the kingdom, the manifold wisdom of God himself is so profoundly known that it shakes the heavens. You know, even in our everyday lives, for many of us, if you think about it, we each have these profound missions that we take on that give us a moment of pause, as it should. It's not just in a spiritual sense, but just think in a, in a practical way in, a, in our everyday lives. Think of the role of parenthood. If you're a parent, you don't enter into that particular mission lightly or unadvisedly, do you? You're, when you're a parent, you take on this honor and privilege and responsibility of knowing that there's this little human or little humans that you're responsible for. You're responsible for their care, for their nurturing, for their sustenance, especially when they're so young. You're responsible for their health, for their worldview. As a parent, you shape your children's worldview, whether intentionally or unintentionally. You guide them along. You teach them how to live. Oh, being a parent is not for the faint of heart. It is a mission worthy of our full attention and our responsibility is to live that out faithfully as parents. But in a spiritual sense, the grand vision that we are created for is to make the gospel known everywhere we go. In order to unpack this mission, we need to dig a little deep into the mystery of the mission. It's not as straightforward as, oh, we'll just go make the gospel known everywhere. Verse 10 is, in chapter 3, is one to underline and highlight, but I want to back up a little bit. I want to go to verse 2. Ephesians 3, verse, starting in verse 2, I want you to read Paul's words here as he begins to explain the mystery of this mission that we're all on together. In verse 2 he says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I've already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight, Paul says, into the mystery of Christ. Right? Into the mystery of Christ. Underline that part. Which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Paul is unpacking and he is revealing a mystery of this faith that we all need to listen to. It's not just written to a church 2,000 years ago. This is Holy Spirit-inspired revelation that the Apostle Paul shares for all of us. So the first thing you need to understand about it is that this is God-breathed mission. This is God-inspired mystery to take our faith from our very limited understanding and for God to remind each and every one of us that we'll never fully figure it out. Our faith is a mystery, and rightly so and proudly so. It cannot be contained to our own minds. God has made it 
so that this profound mystery of the gospel is constantly being discovered and revealed in every single generation, and ours is not exempt from that. The second thing you need to understand is the timing of when this is, was, was revealed. This was given to the apostles and to the prophets in this time in the first generation of the church. God, in his wisdom, used people like the apostle Paul to speak this truth to the church in its earliest form. And the mystery of Christ has guided the church ever since. It was not made known to other generations. Not until Jesus Christ had come. Not until he taught a whole new radical message of love and transformative grace. Not until he gave his life to give us life. Not until he was resurrected. Not until the Holy Spirit had come upon humanity in the form of the church. Then the revelation of God, the mystery of Christ was revealed. But let's keep reading. Let's discover, Paul's about to spell out what this mystery is for us. Let's read in verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Now, we have the benefit of a couple thousand years of history to lean back on to, to read this and have it make perfect sense to us. Okay, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. But let's go back a couple of weeks. Let's examine the dynamic of what that looked like and how profound this truly is. You see, in the first generations of the church, the church was comprised largely of Jewish Christians, people that understood the promises of the Old Covenant, that understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of that, and that committed their lives to them as people that understood the promises and the covenants of God and see the fulfillment of that. The church was largely a Jewish Christian church. Well, Paul and others came along and just expanded that to the world of the Gentiles, the world of the Romans, the world of the pagans. This was wildly controversial in the earliest generations. So the mystery of Christ, the mystery here that Paul is referring to, is that the gospel is open to everyone. The gospel is open to everyone. Now, that's not just a history lesson. That's, that's not just studying the Jewish-Gentile dynamic from a couple of thousand years ago. That's translating that truth into our context. The same truth holds. The gospel is open to everyone. We need to be reminded of that. Why is this important? I want us to go just really quick to the Christmas story and then the Good Friday story. Can we do that? Let's go, let's go backwards in time a little bit in our Bibles. I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 1 to provide a needed context here. And in Matthew 1, you've got the angel Gabriel, and he visits Mary and tells her she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And then later he goes to visit Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, in a dream. He communicates to Joseph the same thing. So in Matthew 1, verse 20, we read this. But after he, being Joseph, had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay? She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name 
Jesus, and key into this part, because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people, his people. We've always understood that from a primarily Jewish context, the people of the covenant. Joseph and Mary were both Jews living in Israel. Okay? Now, let's fast forward a little bit. Let's go to Matthew 27. Let's go to the crucifixion. Get, get in that mindset of Christ on the cross, paying the ultimate penalty, dying a sacrificial death, winning the victory over sin by his death on the cross, enduring such pain and humiliation and shame in that moment. But in Matthew 27, at verse 50, we read this. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. Why is all this important? Really quick, if you don't catch this, if you don't really focus on this, you could run right by it and miss it. It says that the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And that is not an easy task. The curtain in the temple, if you can visualize it, was not just a drapery. It wasn't just a piece of cloth. It was this incredibly massive, thick curtain that went that spanned, I, I believe it was about 30 feet in the air. It was gigantic, and it served a purpose. The curtain in the temple represented the separation between where man could stand and the holy place in the temple. And on the other side of the curtain was where God's presence was. Hundreds of, hundreds of years before this event, it's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the Holy of Holies, there were very specific regulations about who could enter that, that room and when they could enter that room. The very presence of God was there, and that curtain in the temple was the separating factor, is what divided the place of men in the holy place from the place of God in his presence, in the holy of holies. So when we read in this crucifixion account that that curtain was torn in two as soon as Jesus died, that is incredibly important and symbolic because here's what it represents. No longer will there be separation between sinful humanity and a holy, holy, holy God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because of his death, his atoning death on the cross made it possible for that curtain to be torn in two and for a sinful humanity to find redemption with a holy God. Not just for one people group, not just for one nation, but his people, as the angel Gabriel said. Who are his people? It's everyone. Just take a moment and let that sink in. Everyone has the opportunity to not just hear the gospel, to receive the gospel, to have their lives changed by the gospel. This is a profound mystery of our faith. Because here's our mission again. I need to remind you of our mission. Our mission is that the church would make known the manifold wisdom of God, the gospel, so profoundly that heaven itself rejoices and hell recoils in fear. So the question is, how are we doing with our mission right now? 
Think, think about that. You as an individual, as a family, us as a church, as a local congregation. Or how about the church globally? How are we doing in making a manifold witness of God through the gospel known to everybody? Question. How does that work if we just are content to stay inside of a Christian bubble, so to speak? How are we making the gospel known to the world around us, to everyone? If the only people we spend time with and interact with are people that already believe the same things we do. Now, there's value in that. There's a need for that. There's, we preached just a couple of weeks ago about the value of the church coming together and being the church and lifting each other up, worshiping God together. Yes, absolutely there's value in that. It's part of what we're created for. But if it just stays there, then what are we really doing? We're interacting with people that think the same way we do all the time, and we're not getting the manifold wisdom of God, the gospel, out to everybody so much so that it shakes heaven. How does this work if we, as individuals, as families, and as churches, how does it work if we spend all of our time focusing in on making sure that we are protected from the world around us? Are we really living out our mission if we're doing it that way? If we're living our lives that way? Picture it this way. Picture a, a storm, a coming storm like a hurricane. About to become hurricane season. And if there's a, a hurricane that's coming and we're all together in one house, it's important for us to take certain precautions to board up the house, to put tape and, and make sure we're safe, make sure the generator's working, make sure the refrigerator stocks so we're okay. But make no mistake about it, there were, to keep the illustration going, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of people that are wandering the streets outside as the storm is about to hit. What will we do? Will we make sure the generator's fired up and we're putting a good movie on and we're making sure popcorn's ready because we've got to batten down the hatches for a while and make sure we ride this out? Or are we going to go out there into the street? And we're going to do everything in our power to draw people in to safety, into where we are. This is the mission that we're all given as his church. This is what we're created for. The manifold wisdom, the gospel of peace, the gospel of grace is meant to be shared, to be delivered, to be so profoundly experienced by the rest of the world that heaven rejoices and hell recoils in fear. And we cannot do that if we keep focusing in on our own security and safety and protection from that world that we seek to transform. There's another question. I get a lot of questions today. If you were the enemy, the Apostle Paul describes these principalities these spiritual authorities in the heavenly realms, and we know that we do have an enemy. If you were Satan himself, say, and you knew that God had given his church this commissioning, and you also knew that God had given his church the power to accomplish that mission, what would you do? I'll tell you what I would do if I was the enemy. There's a few basic strategies that I would employ. 
The first thing I would do is I would make sure that the church relies so heavily on infighting that they don't accomplish their mission at all. Let's get them arguing amongst themselves so that their witness, so that their focus on the mission is virtually non-existent because they're too darned busy making sure that they're fighting amongst themselves. <laughs> I just thank God we don't know any churches that have that as an issue. The next thing I would do if I were the enemy is I would try to take out the leadership, try to take out the generals. I would try so hard to discourage leaders and to take them out in various means that the church of God is leaderless and just kind of running all over the place. Next thing I would do if I were the enemy is I would make sure the soldiers that are fighting this battle in the spiritual realms, I would make certain that those soldiers feel ill-equipped, that they feel, oh, that's somebody else's problem. I'll use my quotation mark here again. I would make sure that those soldiers that are fighting this fight feel ill-equipped because, quotation marks, I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism that needs to fall on someone else's shoulders. And finally, I would make sure that the soldiers fighting that battle get so incredibly comfortable in their own camp that they never want to leave it and go to the front lines of the battle. Ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake about it, we are in a spiritual battle. This mission is given to us for a reason, but this mission is not just handed to us with victory. God has commissioned his church, as we read in Ephesians 3, to be that representative of Christ, to have the power of God working through us as his church. But the manifold wisdom of God is known everywhere. Why? Because the veil of the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and the separation between a holy, holy, holy God and a sinful humanity is gone. Grace has come, salvation has come, eternal life has come, Emmanuel has come, and Emmanuel is still with us. We are meant to be in the front lines of this battle, not forgetting it even exists in the first place. Oh, but Paul's not done here. Let me take you, let's fast forward a few chapters in the book of Ephesians. I hope that you've been reading through the whole letter, as we've mentioned. I hope you've been taking time at least once a week, to read through this letter. We're going to go to Ephesians 6 now. Let's see if Paul has anything else to say about this mission that we're on. The mystery's already been revealed to us, that the gospel is open for everybody, the Jews and the Gentiles alike, and we're, unless you are from Jewish descent, then, well, you're Gentile. The gospel's open for everyone. We get the mission, we get the mystery. Now we get to be about changing the world. So let's read Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 10 here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. This is a charge coming from the Apostle Paul for us to be strong, not from our own strength, but because God is at work within us, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, because we have been given this mission Paul's challenging us to be strong in the Lord when we need it and in his, his mighty power. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Oh, no, there are a couple of really important assumptions being made here. Number one is that there is a real devil. There, 
that he, this is not just some Hellenistic way in ancient Greek culture to sort of personify the struggle of evil versus good, so we need some way to personify it. So let's just talk about a, a devil. No. There's a declaration that the devil actually exists. In the Old Testament writings, in Jesus' own words, in the New Testament writings, there is a real enemy, there is a real devil that exists, and his mission is to distract us from ours. The second assumption that's true here is that this devil has schemes. I just referenced a few of them off the top of my head. We need to take a stand against the devil's schemes if we have any chance of accomplishing our mission. Church, don't ever lose sight of the fact that we do have a mission. God has specifically called us to. Not just the church of 2,000 years ago to get the whole thing started. Maybe more than ever, if you really think about it. The church of the 21st century. Don't miss your calling to this mission. We're told to put on the full armor of God. And I believe that that's important for us to understand that God is fighting this fight with us and alongside of us. And he's equipping us in every way. Verses 12 and 13. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. Does that sound familiar? It's going back to chapter 3, isn't it? It is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take your stand and after you've done everything, to stand. In other words, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Stop fighting each other. If we choose to focus the spiritual battle in a physical way, through a physical lens, we're missing it. We need to fight a spiritual battle through a spiritual lens as God has empowered us and called us, and called us to do. Our struggle is against those principalities, against those authorities, against those powers of this dark world. That's where our fight is. And so often we miss that. We choose not to see it. We choose to focus on the, the fight of the person that's in front of us or the group of people that disagree with us. Stop fighting each other. Let's fight the real battle that exists in the heavenly realms. We get the honor and privilege to be a part of that. This is true of us as individuals. In my own personal, spiritual life, I need to live this out. The spiritual battle rages for me personally. Oh, and this is true of me and my family. There is a spiritual battle that exists every day in the life of my family. And I need to see with eyes of faith. And this is true in our churches as well. Let's keep reading. Because now we're going to find out how we are equipped in this battle. Verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith 
which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Now, for many of us, this is a, a very familiar passage. We, for those of us that grew up in church, you're familiar with the armor of God. And you can go through the different pieces of the armor as you would a Roman soldier. And we can talk about breastplates and helmets and sandals and swords. and Those are all very important. But church, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear specifically from God what we are equipped with. Just think about it for a moment. We are equipped with truth with righteousness, with the gospel of peace. We come in peace for all mankind, right? It's a familiar mission. We are equipped with faith and salvation. We are equipped with the word of God. And we are equipped with prayer, lots and lots of prayer. There's a mission in front of us, and we were called to fight in it. That mission has a lot of mystery, intrigue, and fascination surrounding it. It is not meant to be systematized. It is not meant to be safe and comfortable, contained in our own little world, our own compartment in life. That mission is meant to be lived profoundly on the front lines because of what's at stake quite literally, to change the world. The gospel of the kingdom, the manifold wisdom of God, salvation itself, I'm not trying to use exaggerated words, I'm trying to be very, very accurate. Salvation itself is available for everyone. Regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done in their past or their present, regardless of what they currently believe or what their worldview is, regardless of how much money they have, regardless of where they've come from, regardless of the color of their skin or any other type of orientation they have, the gospel of this kingdom is available for everyone, not just the people that seemingly have it all together, not just the people that know the right questions to ask. In fact, the gospel of the kingdom is very available to the people that don't even know the right questions to ask. What are we going to do to make heaven rejoice and hell recoil in fear as we proclaim this gospel. Well, don't take my word for it. Listen to the word of God and understand that it is not Pastor Mike giving you some sort of a mission right now, but understand that God has already given you this mission if you call yourself a Christ follower. He's already given you this mission. This is part of what we are created for. So go and change the world. You don't need me to commission you. God already has. But go and change the world. Don't wait for someone else to do it. Don't assume that you're not qualified to do it. And certainly don't pretend that it doesn't exist. Don't look or assume that the person sitting next to you or behind you is going to be the one that God's going to qualify better than you to go and lead in this mission because he's given it to you, you. If you're part of his church, if you've 
yielded your life to Christ, if you've received the Holy Spirit, then he's given you the power to go and do it by words and by deeds. It's not all about just preaching to people that need to hear it, although that is important and true. It's about living the life that you're called to as his creation, as his son, as his daughter. Live the faith that we profess and allow the manifold wisdom of God to be shown through your life. I'm not qualified to do that, but God makes me qualified because the Holy Spirit resides in me. And it is when I choose every day to live this life of faith that that manifold wisdom of God, not of Mike Adams, my goodness, no. The manifold wisdom of God shines through my life. And the same is true of every last one of us as his church. Oh, we have a mission. You're created for a mission that God has already commissioned us for. That we would make known the gospel so profoundly that heaven rejoices and hell recoils in fear. This mission has such a powerful mystery associated with it. And that mystery is that the gospel is actually really legitimately open to everyone regardless of who they are how together they have their life. I thank you, Lord, for a gospel that is meant to be delivered and lived out to the people that are mess-ups in their life like me. I don't know where I'd be in my life without it. The only reason this is even possible is because of Jesus Christ, of what he accomplished on the cross. That curtain was torn in two, that our salvation of our souls was bought and paid for and redeemed and for all time, for all people. Yes, even for you and me. Because we come in peace for all mankind, but we are ready to do battle in the spiritual realms. So if you hear anything today, it's time to suit up. It's time to get involved. It's time to take this faith from being a passive faith, being comfortable faith, to being a faith that is lived in the front lines. Oh, God has given you a mission field. Trust me, it's all around you. All you need to do is open up your eyes and see it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray intently right now that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes of faith collectively, that you would help us to see the mission field that exists all around us. Father, I pray that you would so empower your church that it would never be our strength that we walk in, but by yours that we lead in. Father, I pray that you would empower your church through individuals and families to make this manifold wisdom of God known to all creation because you've deemed it so. And when we accomplish that, Lord, may heaven rejoice and may we be able to experience that and to see it and feel it we accomplish your mission, may hell recoil in fear, not by any works of our own, but because you have made it so. You have won the battle through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Empower us to be living that battle every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.